Welcome to the Raging Rhino Podcast. This is podcast number 157. My name is John. Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? This is a review of the recently released and unfairly derided Shazam! Fury of the Gods. I will talk in depth about the movie, so if you haven't seen it, you really should. Drop everything and check it out, and then come back here. As you should surmise, spoilers. Duh. As always, I'm going to start off with the things I didn't like. I really don't have anything I truly disliked about the movie. There were a couple of eye-rolling moments. The Skittles commercial comes to mind. And that was almost made up for by Darla's shout that was cut out in mid-expletive. The museum guide was annoying. He was much better as the janitor and peacemaker. They really went crazy with the wizards acclimating to the modern world. It's a little odd. Things like that were briefly irritating, but not taking too much away from my enjoyment of the movie. The one real problem with the movie, for me, is not necessarily the movie's fault. It's the fault of comic book writers and the past oh, decade or so of stories that the movie is based on. The problem is even addressed in the movie. When the team learns about the origin of their powers and how each letter of the name stands for something, they see Wisdom of Solomon and joke that, huh, Billy hadn't gotten that power. That's the problem. See, for most of Shazam's history, when he says the name and becomes the hero, he turns from a child into an adult. Not a child in an adult body. There's even one scene in the comic book that always stuck with me from the Obsidian Age storyline, where the Justice League is lost in time and presumed dead. Batman's contingency plan, because Batman always has one, is for a new group of heroes to take over the League. So he has these robots, modeled after Mr. Terrific's T-Spheres, go to various heroes to offer them a spot in the new League. One of the robots finds Billy Batson and makes him the offer. Billy wants to jump at the chance, but instead, he stops himself. He turns into Shazam. And using the wisdom of Solomon, decides it's not the right time for him to go to the Justice League. Yeah, the modern take of child in a man's body is funny, occasionally cute, and has kind of nostalgic ties to movies like Big and Freaky Friday that make it accessible to a certain section of society that may not be familiar with the hero, but would like the familiar concept. 
but what good is having all these other powers if you don't have the power to use them wisely? It takes away a very important part of the character that would have been pretty damn useful in both movies. Maybe if there were a chance for a third movie, they could go in search of Solomon and find out why the wisdom isn't coming to Billy. Have Morgan Freeman play Solomon. It'll be awesome. The boy-in-a-man's-body twist for Shazam has only been fairly recent. Keith Giffen had the infamous Captain Whitebread twist on Shazam. At that point, he was still called Captain Marvel back in the late 80s, early 90s in the Justice League. But he was still an adult, just very straight-laced, kind of like a classic 50s television dad. Jeff Johns really kicked in this current take in the New 52, along with the extended family of fellow foster kids. I would have opted for a more traditional Shazam, but it's not my call. I do think that Zachary Levi could easily pull off the good, honest, fair, classic Shazam, given the demeanor he's shown over the years. He seems like a nice guy to me, and that's really what classic Shazam is, just a nice guy who happens to be a really powerful superhero. That being said, Zachary Levi does a great job embodying both the childlike joy and angst in the movie. Well, I guess I'm already on things I like. The advancement of the story. The story of this sequel makes sense, given the theme of its predecessor. The first movie centers around Billy Batson searching for his birth mother, who abandoned him when he was five years old. He keeps running away from foster homes, rejecting the people who are willing to care for him, because he erroneously believes that if he finds his birth mother, he will be complete. But he finds out the hard way she doesn't want him, and realizes that he already found the family who loves him, with his foster home. It stands to reason that Billy, having taken a long, heartbreaking road to find a family, now is clinging to them a little too tightly. He's afraid of losing what took him so long to find. He insists that they all be superheroes together and no one go off on their own. He has to come to terms with the fact that they are all growing up and will have to venture on their own. The movie takes Billy through to his next level of maturity. The sequel continues the same fun yet a little scary theme. Once again, there are some scary and foreboding creatures amongst all the humor and fun. Maybe not quite as grotesque as the seven deadly sins from the first movie, but still pretty scary for little kids. It makes sense that a magic-based hero will encounter magic-based villains. Match the threat with the skill set, something the first Suicide Squad failed to do. 
Again, the way the story unfolded made sense with Billy's character growth. In the first movie, he had to embrace family, which meant he had to share his power, share himself with the others so they could defeat the bad guys. This time, he had to learn not to cling so tightly to his family, so it made sense that one by one their powers are taken away so he can learn that it's okay if he has to fly solo. In the unlikely event of a third movie, maybe it's a final lesson on learning to balance it all out. I like the fact that something small from the first movie affected the plot of the second movie. After Billy shares his powers with the other kids, he breaks the wizard's staff, so Savannah can't use it to steal their powers. It sort of makes sense. But in doing so, he unwittingly gives the daughters of Atlas the ability to come back to our reality and cause problems. I love that Billy defended himself. How was he to know that breaking the staff would do that? I mean, if you aren't going to give the kid an instruction book or any kind of warning, you can't get on him too much about it. Some of the kids have their moments. I like that Eugene has spent his time learning as much as he can about the Rock of Eternity and found Steve the sentient pen. Yes, I did say sentient pen, writing utensil who helps them learn more about their powers and takes dictation a little too specifically. Darla has her moment saving kittens, including the nod to the comic book character Talkie Tawny and getting the unicorns to help them save the city. Freddy's time with the wizard turned out a lot better than I thought it would when they first got thrown together in the movie. I like that Mary now doesn't have an adult persona, which makes sense because she's now an adult. However, I think she should have always been the one character, the one kid, who did not change appearance, because in the comic books, Mary's appearance never changed when she activated her powers. I also like the fact that Mary was hungover at one point in the movie. I like that the most responsible of the children is the one making the dumb adult mistake. By the way, since I referenced Talkie Tawny a moment ago, how freaking bizarre would it be if they managed to sneak in references to Golden Age Shazam characters like Uncle Dudley Marvel and Hoppy the Marvel Bunny? Yes, these characters exist, and they need to be in live action. The Daughters of Atlas are, um, well, a strange choice of villains, especially given the vast catalog of Shazam rogues that may or may not work on the big screen. When I first heard about the casting, I thought they were the Fates, but it turns out they're something entirely different. They're not even characters from the comic books. I'm not familiar with their mythology, and I had to read up on it a bit. The stories of the Daughters of Atlas are a little sketchy, but the three in this story seem to be the ones who tended a garden with a golden apple tree, which I guess is what their realm is supposed to be in the movie. 
but he really didn't do much else, at least not in any stories as well known as other Greek myths. That being said, you can't go wrong with Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu, who give great performances. Liu is subtly vicious, and Mirren has such a commanding presence. The one thing I really disliked about the first Wonder Woman movie is that the final act looked like she was beating up a little old man who was always portrayed as frail up to the final battle. There is nothing weak or frail about Helen Mirren's character. Even when she was dying, she still had a strength about her. I could believe with her presence that she was able to beat that crap out of Shazam. So I liked the villains in this movie. Even though... I would have liked to have seen the classic Shazam villains team-up that was teased at the end of the first movie. Here's the thing, though. The explanation for why Savannah is not back with Mr. Mind is hilarious. And it is one of my favorite in-credit scenes from any movie. Savannah, once again, is sitting in his jail cell with his bizarre writings on the wall. And Mr. Mind once again shows up. Savannah is absolutely pissed that Mind has been away for two years. I'm 57 years old, he screams. After pressing him on the matter, Mr. Mind basically says, I got little legs. It takes me a while to get to places. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Mr. Mind says his plan is finally ready, and Savannah is all ready to hear all about it. And then Mr. Mind says he has one last thing to do, and then crawls away, leaving Savannah apoplectic and screaming, God damn it! I gotta get a meme of that. I loved it. I said it before, Mr. Mind is number one on my list of DC characters I never expected to see in live action, much less a live action movie. I really wish we could have gotten more of this. I loved Wonder Woman showing up. The dream sequence where we don't see her face was an interesting parallel to Superman's faceless cameo in the first movie. It also makes perfect sense for a 17-year-old to have a dream about a beautiful, popular superhero like Wonder Woman. I'm sure her faceless first scene was done on purpose to spoof the first movie and maybe try to piss off people like me who bristled at Calvo's exclusion. I'm still not buying the he-wasn't-available narrative. But I knew that there was a special cameo, and Wonder Woman, given her connection to Greek mythology, is a sensible choice. When they didn't show her face in the dream, I expected a payoff. So when Shazam dies, defeating Calypso, told you they were spoilers, I was sure Wonder Woman would somehow be the key to his resurrection. And, by the way... 
fantastic nod to Shazam charging the villain with the staff, heading to his death, almost exactly the same way Superman charged Doomsday with the Kryptonite staff in Batman vs. Superman. That had to be intentional. It was at that moment I went from thinking that Shazam is going to find a way to defeat the villain and rejoin his family, to realizing he's about to die. I loved the quick return from the dead in a way that made perfect sense within the movie narrative, but man, that scene charging with the staff was very cool. Kudos to director David Sandberg and Zachary Levi and whoever else came up with the idea for that. Sure enough, they need the power of a god to restart the realm of the Daughters of Atlas and resurrect Shazam, and right on cue, there's Gal Gadot in full splendor. I also loved Billy's feeble attempt to hit on Wonder Woman and her calm dismiss of his advances. You gotta admire the kid who's going to take a shot. I would have. And since I'm talking about beautiful people on the screen, let me just say that Gina is absolutely drooling over DJ Katrona, who plays the superpowered version of Pedro. She was cooing every time he was on the screen. And me? You know who I am just head over heels crazy over? Marta Milans, who plays foster mom Rosa. Oh, that scene when they're in bed before the kids come running in as full-grown superheroes. Oh my God, she was breathtaking. I wouldn't mind pulling a Billy and making an ass of myself trying to ask her out on a date. Also, the fact that both Billy and Freddy are attracted to women who are literally thousands of years old is hilarious, and Rose's comment is priceless. The mid-credits scene was cool. I know that they had hope for other characters to show up, but I think they worked well with what they had. I gotta wonder when it was filmed. Is this approved by the new brass with DC movies? since we're talking about characters from Peacemaker showing up to talk to Shazam about joining the Justice Society? Or do we have another Henry Cavill fiasco promising the fans something that won't happen because, well, we made other plans? And doesn't that just sum up the problem with DC movies right now? I'll talk about the upcoming slate here in a minute, but to dismiss or leave the existing movies in the lurch like you've obviously done with Shazam, it's pretty damn uncool. This movie deserved more support than it got from the studio. I have, in no uncertain terms, expressed my love for Zack Snyder's DC movies. I love the more thought-provoking take on the heroes. I love the fan service of things like the references to Dark Knight Returns and Death of Superman storylines. I love the modern take on the Kents who understand what this modern world would do to a child with powers like Clark's. I love the complex villains. 
I love the tone. If for nothing else other than a breath of fresh air from the saccharine sweetness of other modern superhero universes, including the original Superman movies. I don't get why other Snyder fans would dump on something like Shazam. I've said it before and I'll say it again. In 1988, I could pick up the Batman comic book and read the Death of the Family storyline where the Joker beats Robin half to death with a crowbar and then locks him in a building with a bomb that goes off that kills him and his mother. And of course, as comic book fans know, this is the Robin Jason Todd. I could then pick up the often comedic Justice League International and read about Batman dealing with teen dynamics and doing things like Oh, punching out Green Lantern Guy Gardner. Two vastly different settings for Batman, and two vastly different takes on the character in those settings. And it was just fine. I didn't need to have a consistent tone or interconnecting storylines. It's sad that fans expect that. It's sad that some fans won't support Shazam because it doesn't have the same tone as Snyder's movies. Can't we just be happy that these characters who have spent decades relegated to comic book pages, animated shows, and low-budget television series are now on the silver screen? Can't we as fans just take the movie for what it is and be happy? And it's sad that the movie studios can't just let the directors and actors make the best movie they can and not fret over connecting everything in the hopes of the raking billions of dollars like the competition. Oh, by the way, any critic who complains that this movie, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, is formulaic and does not also acknowledge the blatant, formulaic movie slate of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is full of crap. I've mentioned before about how all but one of the Marvel movies in the first three phases can be boiled down to one of six plots. Marvel has a bunch of milquetoast plots held together by charming personalities and fanboy pandering. That's why after Endgame, I decided I had enough. And I'll watch the other movies when they're free somewhere and I have the time. Okay then, how about that DC slate? I'm not thrilled, but I'm not disappointed. I've also become a little less excited than I was when it was first announced. I'm approaching this in the same way when I first heard about Michael Keaton playing Batman in the late 80s, or Heath Ledger playing the Joker in The Dark Knight, or at least I'm trying to approach it with the same mindset. I'm scratching my head, but I'm hopeful that it will be better than I expect. So let me go over what's been announced so far. I have no opinion on the authority, because... I'm just not familiar with them. 
I've read some stories with the characters a while back, but I don't really remember much about them. The synopsis of the team is that they get the job done by any means necessary. That doesn't really sound like a family-friendly movie that will rake in the big bucks, does it? Oh well. A new Supergirl movie! Meh. I've mentioned before that Batman and Superman are pretty far down on my list of favorite DC characters. By extension, their family of characters are less important to me. I'm sure there are exceptions, and it's usually those characters who've had interesting stories away from the big hero. Nightwing is the perfect example from what Wolfman and Perez did with him back in the 80s. Huntress, Power Girl, and Steel also come to mind. Supergirl, however, is just not that compelling outside of the fact that she's, what, Superman's cousin? So what? Let's be honest. The most memorable story about Supergirl is her death. The Brave and the Bold a Batman and Robin story focusing on Damian Wayne as Robin, skipping over Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, and Stephanie Brown. I thought this was supposed to be a younger Batman in this new-slash-rebooted universe, whatever you want to call it. Well, we're going straight to the most recent Robin and ignoring a slew of good characters? I mean, sure, you can still have Nightwing, but his time as Robin is key to the character, you can't do that justice with exposition. And skipping over generations of legacy heroes is one of the biggest problems with the New 52. Superman Legacy I was speaking with a couple of co-workers last week, and we all agreed that James Gunn just doesn't seem like the right writer or director for a Superman movie. I don't think he can give enough depth to the character, and I don't think he can pull off the nostalgia-heavy movie that would surely be demanded by critics and fans of the character who haven't read a comic book in 30 years, which are the people who hated Zack Snyder's take on the character. That really seems to be what the masses want in Superman, isn't it? A guy who you never really feel is going to lose, punching out the bad guy with a smile on his face and flying off into the sunrise with John Williams' music playing. Well, we'll see. Swamp Thing. Great. Even though I tend to skip horror-based comics, Swamp Thing is an exception, and Alan Moore's run has a lot to do with that. I dare you to read the opening pages of The Anatomy Lesson and not be enthralled. I really enjoyed the short-lived series a couple of years ago. It had its flaws, but was getting really good with some really great actors. I'm disappointed they didn't try to find a way to bring it back. The character has potential, and the movie has potential to be really good. Wow, this is really the only movie on the new DC slate I'm really interested in. 
On the TV side, we have Waller, which on one hand is great because Viola Davis just kills it at that character. But on the other hand, I just don't see a need for a TV series about her when her storyline could just be incorporated into the next season of Peacemaker. Paradise Lost. Oh boy. After the utter debacle that was Gotham, I don't know if they could handle another show about a hero's home without the hero. Granted, the first problem with Gotham was trying to bring all these villains into the story without the hero, and asinine writing didn't help. But in the comics, stories about the Amazons without Wonder Woman haven't been all that great. I'm not really looking forward to this. Booster Gold. Okay, one of my truly hopeful upcoming shows. I have liked the character since he began in the 80s. I like the original concept by Dan Jurgens, the inclusion of comedy brought by Keith Giffen, the time cop spin brought by Jeff Johns, and even the one-shot story in Justice League Unlimited about him. Fingers crossed for this one. Booster Gold's a good character and hope he gets his due. And this goes double for Lanterns. Still not entirely thrilled that this is a series and not a feature film, but I guess they're still gun-shy about the property. Green Lantern is my all-time favorite superhero, so I really hope this is good and it succeeds. Creature Commandos. This, this is the oddball series that I am actually looking forward to. This seems perfect for James Gunn's style. J.M. Matisse, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name, is an often overlooked and underappreciated comic book writer who deserves something like this off-the-wall creation to be seen and enjoyed. I can't wait to see this series. But still, out of the, what, ten things mentioned in the slate, I'm only interested in four of them? Man... So the future isn't so bright I have to wear shades. I'm afraid DC is leaving behind bold storytelling for cheap jokes, vivid colors, shallow plots, and shallow characters played by charismatic actors. But I guess that's what they feel they have to do. Oh well. At least Shazam! Fury of the Gods was fun, thanks to a great turn by Zachary Levi and menacing villains played by Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu. Oh, and Marta Malans, if you listen to this podcast, feel free to DM me. Seriously, though, check out this latest and probably last Shazam movie. It really was a lot of fun. This is the Raging Rhino Podcast. You'll hear from me again. <laughs>